We continue in a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we have come to the end of the parables, which are in chapter 13. And the parables also end three of five major speeches of Jesus. And I mentioned five speeches of Jesus because Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, and he's thinking of Jesus as the new Moses who gave the five books of the law. And so Matthew, who we learned last week, understood himself likely to be a scribe, perhaps even like the scribe Ezra in the Old Testament, who, according to Jewish tradition, compiled the Pentateuch, has drawn together this gospel and has crafted it in such a way that um, it is um, it's a classic, to say the least. It forms a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you have been following along closely with us over the past several months, you'll notice that Matthew interchanges narrative and speeches. And I think he got this from the Old Testament. Um, in a former incarnation, I was an Old Testament professor and uh, taught courses on the Pentateuch. And one of the recent developments in the understanding of the Pentateuch was an appreciation of the way in which law is juxtaposed with narrative. You have a block of law, and then you have some stories. You have a block of law, and then you have some stories. And scholars are coming to appreciate more and more that those two are in dialogue with one another. The narratives shed light on the speeches or the laws, and the laws shed, shed light on the narratives. And so today, as we come to this shift from the parables, as we find in verse 53, and it was that when Jesus finished these parables, he rose up from there, and then we continue with narrative that we've said goodbye to the teachings of Jesus in a way, but in another way, the teachings of Jesus prevail. And if there's one thing that the Gospel of Matthew is about, it is about the identity of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 13, we were at the centerpiece, the third of five speeches. And at the center of Matthew's Gospel are these parables about the kingdom. And they serve two purposes. Uh, they educate the young in the faith, but they also tantalize and tease and make the uh, mature in the faith scratch their heads and ponder. They keep some people from believing. They encourage other people to believe more. And so today we switch gears and we move to a new narrative block, which will take us from chapters 14 through 17. And this narrative is like the previous narrative that led us up to chapter 13. The narrative has to do with taking offense at Jesus, Jesus's opponents. Now, there's lots of material in here, just as there was in, uh, in chapters 11 and 12. But one of the recurrent themes throughout is opposition to Jesus, and the opposition to Jesus increases. And so here at the end of chapter 13, which really uh, might have been titled the beginning of chapter 14, if uh, the person who uh, crafted the numbers and the chapters was maybe thinking a little bit more clearly, uh, commentators will sometimes call 1353 the beginning of 14, and you say, how could they have made that mistake? But they, they, they just get the idea that 1353 starts a new block of material. And um, I hope already you may have caught on to the fact that there's a, um, a panned out here um, an eight and a half by 11. Yes, in my former incarnation, I was a teacher uh, and, a, and a prof, and I was known, what did they call me? They called me 
um, I think they called me Chainsaw Taylor. And it was because I was responsible for cutting down so many trees and photocopying so much material. They were convinced that I had, a, uh, I had um, an investment in a pulp and paper company. But anyway, today on page four, you'll see the beginning of an outline and I want to direct our attention uh, to it. And the focus is on the identity of Jesus Christ. And the sermon subject is three more ways to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom. Three more ways to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom. The reason I've said three more ways is because you might recognize that the word understand is something that came up in the parables over and over again, and that the seven parables of chapter 13 were all about understanding who Jesus is and what the nature of his kingdom is. And so I want to focus on the identity of Jesus today and talk about three ways to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom. And if you look at the top of page four, I have as a thesis statement to live life meaningfully and well for eternity begins with a proper understanding of the identity of Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. And if you think about it and what you're doing right now, if you are um, a follower of Jesus, um, I think it's almost inevitable that who you believe Jesus to be has made a difference in the choices that you make in your life, maybe what you've decided to do, how you decide to conduct yourself, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. I mean, you're here at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon. Who Jesus is makes an enormous difference in one's life and makes a difference for eternity. Let me switch gears and you'll see how it comes around. You know, when you grow up in a family, you come to sort of learn little pieces of family history as time goes on. And um, I learned some history about my dad um, that I hadn't always known. My dad went to University of Toronto here. He went to Harvard Collegiate on Harvard Street for high school. He went to medical school. And um, he, when he graduated, he moved to Calgary because he fell in love with my mom and the Rocky Mountains. And he went to practice uh, neurosurgery. He was a neurosurgeon. And when he got there, he said, um, hello, um, he introduced himself at the hospital, and he said, my name is uh, Dr. C. Taylor, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to do surgery and, and help out in your hospital. And people were very nervous, and he didn't really understand. And he found out that um, before he came to Calgary, there was a Dr. C. Taylor who was a fraud neurosurgeon. He was a quack. Uh, and for years, he had been fooling doctors. He'd been operating on people. He'd been doing trephinations, you know, those, those holes in the back of the skull that you find in archaeological excavations. I guess he'd been of some help, but he was an amateur, fake brain surgeon. So it just so happened that when my dad came to town, he had the same name. I mean, this other person's C. Taylor was different than my dad's, who was, who was Charles. But... Um, uh, people were very nervous about his identity until he was able to sort of establish that he was a different guy. And then people were more willing to let him operate on them. I remember at dinner, we used to laugh at my dad because he would talk to a friend and he'd say, well, hello, Bob, I'd just like to pick your brains for a few minutes. 
And we'd always be surprised that the phone didn't click on the other end because uh, that's probably not an expression that a, that a neurosurgeon should use. So my point is that the identity of a person affects um, what kind of trust you put in them, who you think they are. I mean, is this person a quack or is this person the real deal? So um, at the beginning of our story, Jesus has finished his amazing parables and he comes to his hometown. He's now uh, residing, of course, in Capernaum, but he comes back to his old haunt and he gets a reaction, kind of a mixed reaction about the nature of his identity. Uh, on page one of your handout, I'm reading from a slightly different translation than the one that was read, and it has a point to it, so I would encourage you to follow along. And so it was that when Jesus finished these parables, he rose up from there. And coming to his hometown, he began to teach them in their synagogue in such a way as to astonish them. And they said, and I've cut out, I, I've included the words quite literally, what's in brackets are words that you have to supply. From where has this this wisdom and the miraculous powers. And they call him a this again a little bit later on, just before verse 57. From where, therefore, this get these things? And they just couldn't get their minds around the fact that here they were recognizing this guy. I mean, they know his, they know his mom, they know his dad, they know what his dad does, they know his mother's name, they know that they can name off all of his brothers, they can name off all of his sisters. This is the local hometown boy, Joseph's kid. But he's teaching and he's doing miracles that give them cognitive dissonance. And so they say, from where has this fellow come with this wisdom and this mirac these miraculous powers? And the way that Matthew has crafted the story, he's created kind of a little, um, what's called a, a chiasm, which is um, like the big letter X, you know, that you start at the outside and you work towards the middle. So I've, I've reflected this structure so that you'll see that D in the middle is what's missing. Um, they ask a question as they're leading in from where did this person get this idea? And then they say, is not this the son of the carpenter? Um, and then they name, name another family member, which I've underlined, whose mother is called Mary. And then skip over to C prime, whose brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And then they come and they say, and are not all of his sisters known to us? Matthew, I think, has crafted this very carefully so as to lead us to question, hmm, what about his father? You see, in Mark, uh, Mark Mark's version of this story actually talks about um, Jesus being the carpenter. But here they say, is not this the son of the carpenter? So the missing D is the key to the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a special father. Yes, his father by name, his stepfather, as it were, was a carpenter, but his real father is obvious, given his miracles, his teaching, and everything else. And it's missing in the story, but it's begging us to answer it. Jesus Christ is the son of the carpenter, uh, formally, um, Categorically, it gave him um, a title to the messianic throne. You trace your ancestry through your father. So Jesus was in the line of David. But of course, Jesus was the son of God. And the question that this text and the next paragraph are asking us is, who is Jesus? And I want to suggest that we might have the same problem that the Nazarites had in three different ways. And here I want to refer to your outline, which is on page four. 
The first way then to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom is not to let familiarity with him and his family trip you up. Don't let familiarity with him and his family trip you up. Now, at this point, uh, you might be sort of saying, uh, well, uh, Glenn, you're a teacher of preaching. You should know better than to do example-based preaching, which means you take uh, uh, an event in the story and, and that's trivial, and you kind of turn it into a moral, you know? Uh, and what I'm not saying is something trivial. In other words, uh, the Nazarenes uh, were too familiar and mistook Jesus' identity. We, too should not um, mistake Jesus's familiarity. Um, but I think that the message really is lying in the text itself. And I want to suggest that his incarnation is a two-edged sword. I was tempted, and I would have brought a picture of a Jewish man in his 20s, uh, except we had to pay $55 now to download it off Google, and I was, I was too cheap on the church's behalf. I thought that... Um, our diligent accountant might call me to, to task. So I want you just to picture a Jewish man. And you don't know necessarily that he's Jesus, but just picture uh, a human being, a, a Jewish man in his 20s. What do you think? You think, well, Jewish man in his 20s. But I want to suggest that when you look at the picture of a human being, you don't immediately look at that picture and say, God, right? I mean, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute, right? So the incarnation in and of itself, as much of a mercy as it is, and as important as it is, keeps us from recognizing the identity of Jesus. We know uh, as Christians, it's a marvel, and it's necessary, and it's, it's, it's all grace. But to look in the face of a human being, and to think, that is God is very hard to compute. And I'm convinced that the picture that we have in Jesus, of Jesus as a human being, makes it difficult for us to get around the fact that he is the one who is from eternity. He is the one who uh, made us. He was there from eternity, and he took on flesh and became a human being. He, he, he took on a person's body, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, nothing particularly important about this fellow Jesus of Nazareth, other than his incarnate status, um, in, endowed with the, the spirit of the living God. Um, so even theologically, I think it's tempting. It, the, the danger is, is, to, is to, uh, to just kind of forget that Jesus is God. But that's the whole point of the story, isn't it? That God became incarnate. This, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, he became a human being. And wonder of wonders, even after he was raised from the dead, he continues to be the risen Jesus of Nazareth, uh, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So one of the ways to mistake the identity of Jesus is to uh, take the incarnation uh, not for both sides. God became a human, but that human being is still God, and in every sense, that human being is God. The second has to do with his familiarity with us and our culture. Familiarity with us. 
And here I'm thinking of um, family members. Maybe you have a brother, maybe you have a sister, aunt, uncle, parents, children who were brought up in the church and it was all kind of just too familiar. And as you grow up in the church, you kind of think, well, yeah, that's what my mom and dad wanted me to learn. They took me to Sunday school on Sundays and I learned about the story of the ark and I learned about Jesus and I you know, went to so many nativity stories. And you can get, become so familiar with uh, Jesus and the stories of Jesus that again, you can miss the point. This is God and he performs miracles. He raises the dead. He knows your thoughts. He's counted the number of hairs that you have in your head. He made you. He loves you. So the wonder of the uh, incarnation of Jesus and the fact that church has become a family institution in our country, as much as it's eroding, I admit that, but it's still floating around. And in our culture, there's a, there's a message that says, don't take Jesus too seriously. You know, yes, it was good. It's kind of like apple pie. It's part of our history, but we don't want to be too, um, we certainly don't want to exclude anybody else like, um, you know, Muhammad or the Buddha or um, all of these other people. And so the temptation is to kind of relativize Jesus. And I just love it when somebody who has been brought up in the church, I have a, a great story of a, of a, a friend who, a family friend whose, whose son lost the faith. He left the faith because he just sort of thought, nah, I'm not buying it. And he married a non-Christian. And wouldn't you know that his non-Christian wife <clears throat> became a Christian? She got converted and um, she knew that his was a background and she was afraid to tell him. She said, you know, that, you know that church that you left? Well, I'm now a part of it. And he said, oh, that's okay. But he noticed such a change in her, and it just warmed his heart all over again, that he came back to the faith. And so something that had been all too familiar in an unhelpful way became familiar to him again, and he embraced the faith because he was able to step back from it, and God hung in there, and he's now um, involved in a, in a, in a, in a, as a leader in a, in a conservative Presbyterian church. Friends, don't let familiarity with him trip you up. This is the real deal. Uh, yes, we know that he had family members, but don't forget this is God. And there's nothing that he cannot do, including deliver you from your sins, give you a new life, set you on a path, help you overcome those habits and whatever else that you have. But notice thirdly, and here's something that I think you probably might be able to relate to more than anything else, his family can trip you up. Some commentators argue that in the text of Matthew is a certain kind of um, scorn for Jesus's family. Uh, yeah, we know his brothers, and some of those guys are, you know, they got their faults, and, and some of those sisters, well, they're just, you know, they're just, yeah, they're around, they're, 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 they're with us. And if you extend this to the family of the church, it's easy to think about the number of people who have left the church or who are disillusioned about the church because of the number of people who call themselves the church family, right? Um, you know, I went to that church until I learned that the preacher was, you know, uh, a hypocrite or, you know, that the, uh, the, the elder was uh, fooling around with, with somebody else's wife or the guy that I gave my finances to ended up being a crook. 
Don't let familiarity with him and his family trip you up. I think that's the lesson of the family of Jesus. And you know, Matthew, in telling the story, he rearranges the order of the, the names of the brothers of Jesus to recall the order of the disciples in another text. And so as Matthew is telling you about the biological family of Jesus, at least in terms of his, um, his, his, um, uh, his, his, his brothers and sisters, Matthew is subtly alluding to the fact that there's another family. And of course, we learned about that other family right before we came to chapter 13, didn't we? When Jesus's mother and family were outside the door wanting to speak to him. And Jesus said, you want to know who my real family is? People who follow and obey my teachings are my real family. So friends, don't let familiarity with him and his family trip you up. Secondly, see his life in yours as both mirror and release. See his life in yours as both mirror and release. What in the world are you talking about, Glenn? Well, uh, this week I was struggling with the question as to why Matthew and why the gospel writers include in the story of Jesus a long story about somebody else. The story of the death of John the Baptist is unique in the gospels. Everything else is pretty much about Jesus, and any extended story is not about Jesus's cousin or relative, but here in this passage, we have 12 verses that talk about the death of John the Baptist. But interestingly enough, if you look carefully, you'll see that John the Baptist and the description of John the Baptist, it's about John the Baptist in one sense, but scratch beneath the surface, and it's a prototype of Jesus. Notice verse 1 of chapter 14. Around that time, the tetrarch Herod, Herod the Tetrarch heard about Jesus. And he said to his servants, here's the question of Jesus' identity. It's important. It influences how you shape your life. Well, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. It's a con account of this, that miracles are at work in him. Matthew has taken the language of he is risen from the dead, which he got from Mark, and turn it into the same language that's used at the resurrection of Jesus. Turn to your notes, uh, if you would, for just a minute onto page six, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew has crafted the story of Herod Antipas to be kind of a prototype of the life and the passion of Jesus Christ. And remember that according to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually met this same fellow in the course of his trial. So here's a list of similarities, bottom of page six. In the case of John, Herod the Tetrarch was responsible for John's death. In the case of Jesus, Pilate the governor was responsible for Jesus's death. John was seized. Jesus was seized, using the same word. John was bound. Jesus was bound, same Greek word. John feared the crowds because they held John to be a prophet, or Herod feared the crowds because they uh, held John to be a prophet. In the case of Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees feared the crowd because they held John to be a prophet. Herod was, Herod was asked by another to execute John and was grieved so to do. Pilate was asked by others to execute Jesus and was reluctant so to do. John was buried by his disciples. Jesus was buried by his disciples. My friends, John is, or Matthew is telling the story of John because he's telling us that to identify with Jesus Christ is to take on a risk in life. 
especially if you want to call yourself a prophet. Uh, Jesus said a prophet is not known except uh, is not honored except in his own town. And uh, they didn't receive him well. And now in the next story, here's his story. Here's a story of a prophet who ends up getting killed. I wonder if anybody can remember, and I think this is where I come introduce it in the outline. If not, that's okay. No, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, John is a prototype of Jesus. He's been called a passenger on the vessel of Jesus's career. And although John is, although Matthew is thinking specifically of kind of capital P prophets here, John the Baptist and Jesus, I wonder if somebody, uh, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Um, and others of you could turn to Luke 9, 1 to 6. And what are Mark 6, 1 to 13, and Luke 9, 1 to 6 about? I've thrown you a curveball. Here you were just kind of sitting back saying, oh, yeah, I'm listening to the preacher, and now he's got you doing homework. A little wake-up exercise. Anybody got a title to their paragraph in Matthew or Mark? Mark 6, 1 to 13, what's it about? Does your Bible have a heading to it? Um, Mark 6, 1 to 13? Okay, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. Ah, then Trevor, then, then Trevor, what comes in verses 14 to 29? The death of John the Baptist. Then what comes in Mark 6, chapter 30? Or, sorry, Mark, Mark 6, verse 30. Uh, no, look at verse 30. Uh, yeah, you're right, but read, just read verse 30. Okay. All right. So you see, you see what's going on. It's the same in Luke is, um, and the point is this, and thank you for bearing with me. And you were reading the titles, you were reading the paragraphs correctly, but I'm just looking at the verses underneath them. Um, Matthew and Luke interrupt the story of the commissioning of the disciples, you know, where they get to go out and they do their thing. And in the middle of that missionary story, the gospel writers Mark and Luke tell the story of the death of John the Baptist. It's kind of like saying, have a nice trip. <laughs> I hope you survive. Uh, you might not. John didn't. Oh, welcome back. Good. I'm glad you survived. Huh? And you're thinking, oh, that was a scary story about John. We made it by the skin of our teeth. So John, the gospel writers take the story of John the Baptist, and in the case of Matthew, they talk about John as a prophetic prototype of Jesus. But Mark and Luke also want us to know that the death, the story of the death of John the Baptist is a it-can-happen-to-you-too story. So why in the world would you want to become a follower of Jesus? Well, that brings us to the release part, doesn't it? You follow Jesus... And you follow his way, and you follow in the path that he led to the cross and the resurrection, and you realize that you're not just called to follow in his footsteps, but you're called to allow him to take you into his arms and to carry you. Because he died for your sins. The whole deal is that he's forgiven you, and he's bestowed grace upon you. So that when you uh, die and face God in heaven, um, Jesus is going to say to God, I got him covered. I got her covered. I died for her. I died for him. 
So the whole reason, of course, why Jesus came into the world was not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners. So um, the, 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 the journey of following Jesus in the footsteps of John the Baptist involves being a passenger on the vessel of Jesus' career, but it also involves being saved from your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So it's a, it, it, it's a mostly good news and, and kind of partly, partly bad news. But of course, this takes us then to the third part of the ways to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom. Firstly, don't let familiarity with him and his family tie you up. Secondly, see his life in yours as both mirror and release. So when you come to the end of your life, like John the Baptist, hopefully you'll be able to see, you know what? I modeled my life in the example of Jesus, and I, I did what he did. And that's something that you need to do, obviously, before you get to the end of your life, and, and that we're, we're called to do now, is to pattern our life after Jesus, to take up our cross, as it were, and to follow him. But that cross is the cross of salvation. And it's the means of deliverance. And third and finally, I want us to note as a third way to understand and follow Jesus and his kingdom is to implement his teachings in daily life. To implement his teachings in daily life. This is illustrated negatively by the behavior of Herod and Herodias. Now, remember what I said about how the narrative comments on the teachings of Jesus and on the teachings comment on the narrative? Well, here you get this story of Herod and Herodias, and they kind of break every rule of Jesus in the book. Um, um, actually, Matthew, uh, when he's describing Herodias dancing in front of him, um, Matthew allows you to understand it as possibly something like a lap dance. It was very evocative. It was very sensual. And so this man's lust and uh, his interest in somebody else's wife and in the daughter of somebody else's wife led to the death of a righteous man, John the Baptist. So these rules that we get from, you know, from the Old Testament and from the teachings of Jesus are actually meant to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And uh, the, the, list, the list goes on. Um, it's, in, uh, it's in section, I got it my outline, where is it? Um, E3. On page six, everything Jesus commands against in his Sermon on the Mount contributes to the death of John the Baptist. Disrespect for the law of scripture, bitter anger of Herodias for John, lust, adultery. He took an oath. We're not supposed to do that. And most obviously, again, especially by Herodias, revenge and hatred. Following the teachings of Jesus is essential to, to living life well and to keep other people from ruination. I've mentioned before the story of uh, Jim Elliott, who was a missionary who was martyred in Ecuador. He went uh, to bring the message of Jesus to um, a, a group of people who were murderous. I mean, they were just, they, their, their favorite thing seemed to be spearing other people, and they were known all over the, the, the region for their their bloodthirstiness. And these four missionaries in 1955 went 
to try and reach this, this group of people called the Wa'odani, and they were speared to death. And no one knew why they were speared to death for a long time. They just said, well, this is a violent, pe this is a violent people. But once they got to know the people who had speared him, it came out that one of the guys had been walking back home with one of the single gals. And they weren't allowed to be on the trail together because this was kind of a social taboo. You know, you, you, you don't want to be alone with another member of the opposite sex when you're walking through the jungle. So in order to save themselves and in order to save face, they made up a lie that involved these missionaries. And they implicated the missionaries and they, they, they implicated them. I, I can't remember exactly how it went, whether they said that they told them to do this or they said it was okay. But anyway, these missionaries were speared to death because of somebody's lie. And uh, the man who actually speared uh, Jim Elliott became uh, a Christian and um, is, uh, is, is obviously remorseful uh, and regenerate. But um, these things go around and come around. And looking at the life of Herod and Herodias, it's easy to see other world leaders doing the same thing, um, uh, attacking other people unjustly for their own gain. So it's illustrated negatively by Herod and Herodias, and it's illustrated positively by John the Baptist. In chapter 10, in the mission to the 12, or in the, in the, in the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, Jesus said, don't worry um, if, they, if, they, if they, don't worry if they kill your body. They can kill your body, but that's okay. The important thing is to remain true. And John lived that out in his life. Folks, there's lots more here, but I simply want to uh, back up and, and go over the same thing again. The identity of Jesus Christ is crucial. And there are three ways, more ways, to understand and follow Jesus in his kingdom. Don't let familiarity become a problem, even in the good news of the incarnation. In your church upbringing, your family upbringing, the baggage that you have about, you know, your you know, the, the, uh, your father who taught you the gospel. The gospel's good, but you have issues with your father. Okay, that's fine, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. His family, the church. And see in the life of John the Baptist uh, a story of a prototype of Jesus and see yourself called to be involved in following that sort of a path, as well as a means of salvation. ignore the do-nots to their peril and to everybody else's. I want to end with two stories that go back to my dad. Once when I was a, the, the way I first came to understand or learn that my, my dad had a, a fraudulent um, predecessor was I was at a, at a, at a camp, uh, an intervarsity camp, sitting there at dinner and I was, there were some guests, uh, board members who came. And one of the board members was a doctor from Edmonton. And he said, uh, what's your name? And I said, my name is Glenn Taylor. And, and he said, oh, um, and where are you from? Calgary, what do your parents do? And I said, um, well, my dad, my dad is a doctor. And he said, your father is a quack. That man drills, drills holes in the back of people's heads. He's a dangerous person. So, you know, you come home with a question to your parents, like, hey, dad, I got a, I got a question. You know, it's sort of confronted with this. And I realized that it was a case of mistaken identity. And so that kind of restored respect for my dad. But, you know, he's still your dad, and, and, and you don't think very much. 
But then when my dad died, I thought, you know, well, yeah, he was an okay doctor. But one of the more most respected doctors, um, one of the doctors that my, that my dad respected and liked a lot, when my dad died, um, he sent a, a little notice around saying, the master has died. You're calling my dad a master? I mean, that's my dad. Um, so um, familiarity can, can just kind of breed content. I mean, you know, you sort of think your dad's a mechanic. He probably messes up half the time and does okay the other half of the time. And goodness knows that we all doubt the competency of our parents if we're under age 30 nowadays. Um, why in the world did God give me those people to raise me? Um, but in the case of Jesus, and my point obviously isn't my dad, let that go way past, is the people of Nazareth failed to recognize that this person who was a relative to them, who was a neighbor to them, was somebody incredibly special. Here was the living Son of God incarnate in the person of Jesus, and he came to give you life. Don't let familiarity keep you from seeing him for who he is. Amen.